creativity is like, it's kind of like surfing where, you know, like you can, you can plan to go out and catch waves, but if the waves aren't flowing, you're not going to catch anything. But if you, if you don't go out, you're not going to catch anything. And create creativity for me has felt more like discipline than it has like it's a gift. Now, I do feel like I have a gift in creativity, but I feel like it's been a muscle. Hey, I'm Lara, an artist, educator, and entrepreneur who's danced through life in Australia, London, and California. Now I'm an Aussie in Atlanta, Georgia, USA. Juggling roles as an artist, ex-dancer, current actor, author, professional educator, and qualified life coach, I'm also a wife and mother of two. Join me on this podcast crafted for creative souls at every level, entrepreneurs, artists, dreamers, and hope-filled humans alike. I'm here to guide you towards a life of love, purpose, adventure, and boundless creativity. As a healthy, wealthy, and wise creative soul, I invite you to hit subscribe for weekly inspiration. Anticipate solo episodes, exclusive interviews with creative luminaries, and insightful discussions with my hottie hubby, Andrew, a specialist performance physical therapist, as we delve into the dynamics of relationships and more. Dive into a 360-degree view of making a creative life you'll love. You're not going to believe who I get to talk to today, Bryant Ellis, a self-made multimillionaire entrepreneur and the founder of the Adventure Challenge. He is a Forbes 30 and under 30 honoree, and he is dedicated to empowering aspiring individuals by cheering on the often misunderstood concept of failure. Bryant delves into this topic frequently on his podcast, The Bryant Ellis Show, and he's recently written a new book called Hello, My Name is Failure. If you have creativity within you and you're an artistic soul, this story is for you. It will inspire you to pivot that well of creative source within you into more than just your primary art form. This is a person who did that and it has served him well. Let's unpack his journey of creativity to millions. Welcome, Bryant. Your company, The Adventure Challenge, has seen an extraordinary journey from its inception to 100 million in sales. Mm -hmm. What were the primary motivating factors from the creation and at the foundation of The Adventure Challenge? I mean, were you (laughs) that bored kid in school? Like, what's your story? Yeah. Well, the idea I got years before I actually created the product for it. I have ADHD, which I believe now is a superpower versus a disability or a, you know, medical barrier. And and so, you know, when I was up in Reading in school, you know, a lot of people want to do like game nights and board games and card games and things like that. And I just get so bored. My attention doesn't stay focused on that for very long. And I remember thinking, man, if someone could make a game that every time you play it, it's something different and you don't know what you're going to play until you commit to playing the game, kind of like Jumanji. I was like, that would be so sick. Like that would be such a fun game. And so I went on kind of like a, an experimental mode where I was trying to figure out how could I make this game? Maybe I make a box, you push a button and it gives you a ticket and that ticket tells you what to go do for fun. And uh, I told some of my friends about it and they thought it was funny. And they didn't like the idea. And I was like, I don't know. It sounds like it could be a genius game. I was like 19 or 20 back then. And so I didn't do anything with it, you know, and I had no idea about what I could turn this into. I wasn't even thinking of making a product 
to sell. It was just, I want to make this for me. So when I go to game nights, I can actually have fun. And, but yeah, for, for several years, I pursued acting. I lived in San Francisco and represented myself there, did, you know, castingnetworks.com, LASF casting, things like that, did student films, indie films, commercials, and then ended up getting signed by an agency in LA, moved to LA, pursued acting, ended up getting really sick in LA. Don't know if it was the atmosphere, the chemicals in the air, what, but I got really sick. And so I, I could go to zero auditions. I did nothing for the entire year. And then I found out that there was an acting conservatory starting in Redding, California. And the lady I was dating at the time, you know, she, she wanted to go up to Redding for a season. My roommate was also an actor. And so we were like, let's just all go up to Redding for a year, take a break from the chaos of LA and then come back and pursue acting again. And so I went up there, started, you know, I did the school and maybe halfway through the, the first year of the program, I got the idea for the book the scratch off adventure book. And I, I told a friend at school, I was like, I have this idea for a product and it's a book that is filled with adventures and you have no idea what adventure you're going to go on until you scratch off the scratcher material. And she loved it. And she was like, you have to make that. That's such a great idea. I could see so many people buying it. And so that's kind of what sparked the journey. And through, you know, through a series of weird events I ended up getting kicked out of acting school maybe a month before graduating which is so funny i'm sorry but it's like well, it, it, it's, it, it is it's funny and it's wild because it's like you know yeah i mean i have a lot of things i could say but it, it was it was a it was a wild thing and it was the first year the conservatory was operating as a school and a business so i have a lot of compassion for the leadership team cuz i'm like mm, especially yeah. somebody who started his own business you're like it is chaos at the beginning it's hard yeah. and so you know and and so, but basically, yeah, I, I got kicked out and I took that so personally and felt so rejected and so unloved. And I was like, well, all I have is my scratch off activity book now. So I'm going to put everything into this to make it succeed. And, and so, and, and my goal was like, Hey, like, I don't want to depend on anybody else for my success anymore. And so if I move back to LA to pursue acting, I don't want to have to be waiting tables and ask my manager for, to get off a shift so I can go to an audition. I want to create financial stability so I can pursue art the way I want to without having to answer to somebody. And so my goal was just to make enough money to make like two to three grand a month so I could pay rent, buy groceries and pay my car. That was it. And I was yeah. like, once I'm making three grand a month, I'll move back to LA, pursue acting full time. That's what's going to happen. And so, yeah, in the process, it made a lot more money than that and <laughs> became a CEO and a company owner. And I can answer any of the questions you have, but that's kind of the, the long version of that's how I got started into it. I've got so much to unpack with you because I find it so fascinating, your story. In summary, then, how did it evolve? You don't have to give every detail right at this moment, but how did it evolve into the phenomenon that it is? today. I mean, it's more than one book. Mm -hmm. It's incredible. How many books are there now? We probably have 10, 10 different products we sell, 10 it's or incredible. 11 or 12. I mean, it's hard to know the exact number because we've discontinued some of the products and then we've launched new products. But I mean, yeah, easily 10 products we sell. And then some are seasonal, like we sell like a, you know, a Christmas advent calendar and we sell that during only Christmas and things like that. So but what was the question? How did it evolve? Yeah. How did it evolve? Because, I mean, it started with one book, and I'm going to go back to that question and that journey a little later, but 
what's the sort of summary version of how it became this huge thing with all these yeah, products? Well, it's it's kind of weird. So it's interesting how ideas evolve. So I had the idea for this book to be a game you play with your friends. It was never a dating book. Like that wasn't yeah. the goal of it. I made a Kickstarter and was like, hey, this is a book to do with your friends. This is a fun game to play. You know, buy my Kickstarter. You know, go to my Kickstarter and buy it. And one day I was like, I should make one. I should also say I'm making one for dating couples because that would be cool too, right? To like have, you know, if Absolutely. you're going Absolutely, and I've seen date. it and it's awesome. <laughs> and, and so, thank you. Yeah. yeah. And so I, I posted that at the end of the Kickstarter. I was like, we're also making one for couples. Just a quick little line about it. I didn't show a picture of it. I didn't have samples of it. Nobody wanted to buy the friends and everybody bought the couples. And I was like, okay, so the market is telling me they want a dating book more than they want a friend's book. And it makes sense. There's a bigger pain point within dating, love, and romance than there is necessarily something fun to do with your friends. There is a market for that, but the pain point for dating is bigger. And so it was interesting because that's what it just evolved into. It was like, okay, we're shelving the friends and we're just making this couple's book. And it was funny because I was a bachelor. My business partner also went to acting school with me and we had developed a friendship through the school. And so when I showed him the product, he was like, oh my God, I really want to be a part of that. And so he ended up buying 30% of the idea for me and coming on as an investor and a business partner. And so we just kind of went all hands on deck and started making these dating books. And it was funny because so many people, I got so many weird comments from people who were like, you're single. Why are you, who's going to buy a dating book from you? And I'm like, I don't know, but I've been on dates. I have good ideas. Like, let's. These are things I'd like to do. Yeah. Things like, and, and it was funny because a lot of the dates in the book I had done with different people on different dates. Because nice. I love. Well, we've got like, there you go. We can see all your. It's like yeah. looking in your sock drawer. Oh, dude. I mean, it's crazy. <laughs> and, and, and I just, I like dates like that. Like novelty is such a, a fun way to get to know somebody, you know, yeah. instead of going out for just a coffee date and sitting directly across from them and having awkward conversation, it's like, go do something weird and fun. Yeah. And, totally. and I love doing that in, in my dating life. And so, yeah, a lot of the ideas in the first book were just dates. I had already taken different people out to go do. And so and so, yeah, it kind of blew up from there. I mean, the dating book, yeah, we sold, you know, a couple hundred thousand copies of that before we even made the friends or the family or the solo edition or things like that. So it, it really just blew up from there. So I would say that the dating book was our sugar daddy. It gave yeah, us all the capital <laughs> to elaborate on other ideas. And then, and then the, uh, I'd say the second biggest seller was the in bed book. And that one, you know, took off as well. And then, the other one that, that must have been very fun to create that you that know book. it it was wild because in reading reading's a pretty conservative city it is yeah and a lot of people working for us especially back then were very conservative and they did not like the idea of a sex book being created yeah and the biggest reason was is you know like a lot in the christian community you know, celibacy before marriage, that's a big yeah. thing, not having sex before married. And so it's kind of wild, the 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 reasoning for not making a sex book, because they were like, well, you're encouraging people to have sex, people are going to have sex outside of marriage. And I'm like, I don't care. That's not what, what the book is. Yeah, the, <laughs> the book is to be done in a committed, healthy relationship. This isn't yeah. just like, go find a partner and, and bang them in weird ways. Yeah, it's it doesn't to, say that in the book. Yeah, and so it was, 
it, you know, and it was, and, and, you know, so that there was a lot of controversy around that. And, but I mean, to make the book, we put so much R and D, we hired sex psychologists, relationship counselors. We, we, we did focus studies on the adventures. We sent out 50 different couples to try these. They brought back feedback. We tweaked, we showed them to sex psychologists and, and marriage counselors. And so every adventure in that book has been tested, studied, developed, researched, Brilliant. and then printed. Yeah. And so, yeah, it was a fun process to do. Yeah, it was it was it was really fun to make that book. And as a woman who's been married for seventeen years, that is an awesome resource to have. Thank you. That, yeah, it's kind of a weird conversation, but it's an awesome book to have because I mean, I just the other day was listening to a podcast about so many people that have been married a really long time mm-hmm. who just need something like that. Yeah. So I think that you've created something really powerful for different stages, different seasons. <laughs> it's like yeah, probably more for people in my season than people people would care to admit. Like it's fantastic. It's really fantastic. Thank you. But that incidentally, when you were creating that one, were you in a relationship? Oh, was it? Were you single? I think I was in a relationship. Yes. That's so yes. funny. I was in a relationship. Is, is there pressure on you now? Is it yeah. like there is pressure on you to do amazing things? And I'm not talking about that book, the first book. The yeah. first book, do you feel like you have to like kind of do these amazing adventures or you're not living up to your own brand? I think weirdly enough, more from like the friends of people I've dated. So like I'm in a, I'm in a committed relationship now, really serious relationship. And and for our dates, like I create a date for us to go do. Like our first date was I took her to this cliff that overlooked the ocean. I brought two little canvases and I was like, what we're going to do is do self-portraits of each other oh, in 10 goodness. minutes. And I had like a little picnic and everything there. And that oh was our gosh, first date. Oh my raised the bar. And it that was, is it was like, fun. wow. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Goodness so, me. Yeah. <laughs> but I won't do any of the adventures in the book usually because it feels like work. It feels like if I'm doing something that's, you know, so I'm like, I just, I like to create new ones and then and take my lady out to go do those. And so, but yeah, there, you know, in the past, I've, I felt pressure where, you know, they're like, oh, you're like the dating going on dates guru, you know, you should be taking, you know, her on the, and I'm like, yeah, maybe, I don't know. Like, I feel like that's just like a small part of the relationship mm. and I think it's important to me, but I feel like I've picked really good partners, you know, in the past who aren't really weird and, um, <laughs> you know, whatever. Yeah, so. That's so true. Well, you are enormously creative and what I find interesting is that you started as an actor mm-hmm. and you pivoted and what does this, you know, what has this experience taught you about the creative source within you and like what it, you're capable of with the mm-hmm. same creativity that started you out in acting? Well, I think whether it's acting, music, creating a product or anything, creativity is like, it's kind of like surfing where, you know, like you can, you can plan to go out and catch waves but if the waves aren't flowing you're not going to catch anything but if you if you don't go out you're not going to catch anything and create creativity for me has felt more like discipline than it has like it's a gift now i do feel like i have a gift in creativity but i feel like it's been a muscle to where it's like you actually set aside time i love the book the war of art by stephen pressfield it's a genius book i anyone i'm coaching or mentoring i make them read that book before we actually start doing any like coaching or mentoring shops 
because he he describes creativity or as as a discipline as it's something that you actually set time aside to go be creative and sometimes creative flows and sometimes it doesn't but if you actually don't make the time to go sit there and see if anything's flowing then you're actually not going to get anywhere and so you know for me with creating my company a lot of it is figuring out like you know maybe I'm making an ad like how do I make an ad that sells this book and you know how can I be original disruptive make something that nobody else has made before how can I cut through all the noise of all the content that's being created and it's really contributed a lot and then along with that I'm really grateful for my acting background because I do a lot of directing and you have to be able to coach actors into you know giving you what you want in in a performance and that's been really beneficial for that. And I, I love working with actors because I've been in front of the camera before. I know what they're feeling. I know the nerves and the pressure and the, the awkwardness and, and what have you. And, and so that's been a really fun pivot to, to, you know, kind of, you know, manifest that type of creativity into something else. And, but I still have a love for the arts and storytelling and acting and things like that. And that's, yeah, you know, nothing's wasted with you. It's like everything that you've been through and done has definitely found a place mm-hmm. in a great way because it's a place that actually makes money rather than sort of this, like you were saying, just trying to make enough to pay for your car and all of that. So this, this takes me to my next question is, you know, you've got this great idea. Somebody says, wow, that's great. You're in college. What were the early steps of product development, design, prototypes, getting funding? Mm-hmm. I'm addicted to all of those kind of documentaries mm-hmm. <laughs> on streaming that talk about San Francisco, Stanford grads who had mm-hmm. some crazy idea and they do talk about being disruptive and finding something that nobody's doing that goes against. And I love mm-hmm. that because I think creativity can, is about meeting a need. But yeah. what do you do from an idea to actually pitching it to an audience? How, mm-hmm. did, how do you do that? How do you even know how to do that? Yeah. Well, I mean, it was a lot of trial and error. It was a lot of failure. It was a lot of making a decision that I thought was the right move and then it not being the right move. And, you know, for me, if I'm meeting with an entrepreneur or anybody for that matter, and they ask me, I have this product idea, how do I bring it to market? There's no judgment against that mindset. But what it shows me is you're not thinking like an entrepreneur. Like an entrepreneur there's Google. You just Google what you can do and then you take steps and then you fail and you recalculate and then you take more steps. And so entrepreneurism is just is just learning to overcome obstacles. That's all it is. It's problem solving. And you get really good at problem solving. You become really good at becoming an entrepreneur. And so I didn't know anybody who had created a product before and brought it to market. So I didn't even know where to start. And so you know, I texted a few friends who had done some stuff similar in the past or had made something. And I was like, how do I even make this? You know, it's a book, but it's not a book. It's a game, but it's not a game. It's kind of a hybrid between the two. And it was just like a little connection after a little connection. I had one friend and he goes, well, it sounds like you just need to make a prototype. And I was like, great. Well, I don't know how to make a prototype. So I'm going to go to Hobby Lobby. Oh, wow. (laughs) And I'm going to buy a notebook and then I'm going to order scratcher tape off Amazon And I'm going to cut it into little squares. I'm going to write the adventure and then just stick it over there. And I'm going to create like a vision of what the product could be. And then I'll know what to do next. And so it was always kind of like, instead of being like, I don't know how to sell this yet. It's like, well, I do know I can make a prototype and then I'll walk through that door and then I'll see what the next door is. And so that's what I did. I literally, 
it's the ugly, ugly prototype of the first. So it's what I'm looking at here for listeners is like literally one of those high school binders, yeah, <laughs> just paper, yep. and you've gone it. That is so cool. And then you that can is see, so cool. You yeah. open it up, and then I have all the scratcher material placed wow. in here. That's so and neat. He's done it so neatly as well. Good on oh, your I, hobby lobby. It, this took so long to make, and I worked so hard to make this freaking thing. And was that it, the original one that you've done, the prototype? Was that all your ideas, or were you in a partnership, a business the, the, partner? Yeah, this this was before. So when I wow. partnered with my partner Ben, mm. I had already made, I had already printed the first order from overseas, and so this was just like me sitting on my couch with a printer, pen and paper, and glue and scissors, and just kind of like putting this together. And so, but this is what I was able to use to pitch to people to show them, this is what I want to make. How do I make this professionally? That's so cool. And somebody goes, well, you know, I went to a local print shop in Reading and they quoted me at like $25 a copy. And I'm like, that's so expensive. I talked to another friend and he was like, well, have you thought about having these books made in China or overseas? And I'm like, that. well, I thought that was taboo. I thought you weren't supposed to do that. I thought that was, and he's like, no, like I have, I know some people who have some really amazing factories and you can go inspect them and you can see that it's a, it's, it's a really good place to, to have creation done. It's not like slave labor and all that kind of stuff. Did you go to China? I didn't go to China, but I basically met with the owners and because this is our first print. We don't work with them anymore. We actually yeah. have a team that goes to China and inspects everything now. Oh, that's um, I've personally <laughs> never been to China and done it myself yet, but we have a team that goes out and, do, and does that. And, but basically, yeah, I just said, this is the book. Can you make it? And they were like, yeah. I was like, that's it. That, that easy. You can make it. And they're like, yeah, we can make it. And then like four weeks later, they had sent me a way better version of what wow. I had done. And <laughs> it wasn't perfect, but it, it looked like something you could find at a bookstore or at, you know, wow. at a game store or something. And so then it was just taking that, finding the flaws in it, messaging them back. Hey, can you fix this, this, and this? They sent me a new sample. Hey, this is good. Could you do this, this, and this? Great. We like this. Can you send us a thousand copies? Awesome. They send me a thousand copies. Now let's sell these thousand copies. And, and then it was off to the races to try to sell them. And what happens with that though? Like, how do you find the funds? Cause you were struggling at that Mm -hmm. point to finance a thousand copies. Yeah. So when I bought the thousand copies, I had partnered with Ben Okay, so, so that's where you got an investor. Yeah, exactly. nice. Yeah. So I think mm-hmm. he gave me, I think he offered me $40,000 for 30%, which at the time, that was more money than I'd ever seen. Yeah. yeah. You know, and I was like, absolutely. So I used that seed money to buy the thousand copies. And then, you know, we use, we, we kind of started that way. So, but actually it's, it's kind of wild because we, it was able to buy a thousand copies and then but then we needed more money to buy 5,000 copies and then the, that 40,000 didn't cover it. And so we were, I had to borrow 18 grand from a friend to get those copies You're and then brave. we paid them back. And then we were like, now we need 30 grand. Can we borrow 30 grand? And we were having a problem finding capital to just buy inventory. And, and it was like, and this is the problem solving thing where it's like, we don't have the capital. Nobody's loaning me money because we're a new company. How do we do this? And this is before, so now you'll see a lot of companies doing this. This was not really a thing back then, except for Kickstarter. We were like, let's sell inventory we don't have, tell them there's an eight-week delivery process, and once we make all this money, then buy the 
the inventory and then send it to them next day. Yeah. And so that's what we did. We literally ran ads and in big bright red letters, it says four to eight weeks for delivery. Cool. And people still bought it. Because you know, we said we're sold out, so it'll take four to eight weeks. We made it sound like it was like inventory was leaving the Brilliant. shelf. <laughs> and it worked so well. It made it seem scarce and people really wanted to buy it. And, and that's where, we where's the first place of sale? How do you take your 1,000 copies and go, where, where am I selling this? I mean, are you talking about Amazon? What are we talking about? Yeah, here? so it's all, it was all direct to consumer. If you're selling a product, especially a product like this, the best way to do it is online through Facebook, Instagram, uh, now TikTok ads, Google ads. Mm. And so it's literally just making a video that's convincing the person that their life is going to be better if they have your product. And, and that was an experimental process in itself. It was like, you know, how do we make something that shows people this is what they need? And so I probably made five or six different ads. They didn't work. And I finally was like, okay, I'm going to make an ad where I'm just showing a couple doing one of the dates. Were those those sexy ones with like in the kitchen? Was that, or is this like book one? This is book one. This was yeah. this. I I filmed this ad with my iPhone and I edited it on iMovie, and I I filmed it with fifty bucks. I paid the models twenty five dollars each, and then I bought some like apple pie material and crust, um, so maybe like seventy bucks. And yeah, I made the promo, and then I got a bottle of whiskey, locked myself in a room, and just drank whiskey and edited it on my it. phone for hours. <laughs> and that was it. I mean, I, I don't know what it was, but I could edit when I'm on whiskey so much better. And so I, I mean, back in the day and that ad made us our first million dollars. Um, that is so, so inspiring. Now, would you say, cause you said you had ADHD, right? Mm-hmm. Did that work for or against you? Does that cause you to go into a vortex of creativity and fixed focus? Or is it just with things that are boring? That Because that's a lot of focus. That's a lot of yeah. attention and dedication yeah. and passion. It's, yeah, it's hard because like ADHD works really good for ideating, creating, and innovating. When it comes to like mundane tasks, it's really yeah. hard. Mm. And I didn't have staff back then. I didn't have employees or anything. So it wasn't like I could just delegate. And so I got into a really bad cycle of Adderall, went to a psychiatrist and they're like, you have ADHD. This is a magic pill. It'll help your life. And I'm like, fantastic. It's actually weird because they've done studies on Adderall and what parts of the brain it activates. And when you're on Adderall, the creative part of your brain almost goes dormant. Yeah. And so you don't people, need that. <laughs> yeah. Especially as a creative. And people think when they're on Adderall, they're being more creative. Your brain is just recycling information it already has. Wow. So it's taking things that you already know and, and, and it's it's helping you, it's help bring it to the front of your brain so you can express it. But to go in and to create from nothing, Innovation. it's almost impossible. Yeah. Yeah. And so it was kind of weird because I was able to get a lot of busy work done, but it was hard for me to innovate and be creative. Mm. And so, I mean, for me, I know a lot of other methods you can do to actually get focused and to raise your dopamine levels and do things to help you be more focused on those stages because like, right, every entrepreneur is like, delegate, delegate, delegate. It's like, yeah, if you don't have capital or money or people. Yeah, how do you even take, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so if I could go back in time, I'd do it a lot differently, but that's what I had then. And I mean, it. it, the reason I said I'd go back in time is because it almost killed me. It put me into such a depression and such Mm a, I felt like such a zombie. I remember I got my first profit check from the company and I think it was like 78 grand. And, and that was the first amount of money I took out. And I, I mean, I had 
40 grand investment was huge. That wasn't my money to spend. It was the company's. To get a $78,000 check for myself, I mean, you'd Mm. think from somebody who's not well off, living paycheck to paycheck, over his head in debt, that would be such a fun experience. I remember I got the check and I was like, okay, cool, next. I had just no emotion. Like the Adderall just like zapped all of my emotions. So there was no excitement, joy, pleasure in the breakthroughs I got. And I was a lot more of just just a zombie. Like even like the employees that we started hiring and the people we were interacting with, I was just like, I don't know. I felt like my empathy left, my compassion, and I was just go, 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 go. It got Mm -hmm. a lot of work done, but it was it was miserable. And so yeah. It's funny because so many CEOs Mm -hmm. I don't know enough about your story. I might be getting myself in trouble, but if I am, but so many CEOs end up getting kicked out if they're from the company they started. Mm -hmm. They've got all this passion. They've got all of this drive, this creativity, and they make it happen. Mm -hmm. But there is some point that's so common, isn't it? And I'm sure you're familiar with numerous stories from Uber Mm -hmm. to, you know, numerous things where they are just burning bridges with everybody. And Mm -hmm. I'm sure you can empathize with the fact that that journey is very, very challenging, you know, from idea. What has it taught you about leadership Mm -hmm. going through all of this? And what do you know now that you wish you knew then? Well, I mean, this is going to sound so cliche and I almost hate saying it, but like you can't take care of people unless you're taking care of yourself. And that's good. You hear that from other leaders, but it's, it, it sounds like a luxury. People think, oh, that's a luxury. I don't have time to take care of myself. It's like, no, you really can't bring your full self to the table and lead well if you're not taking care of yourself. And so if you're, you know, every night drinking liquor in the morning, you're taking Adderall and you're, you're destroying your body, your mind and your ability to come up and show up and be a good leader, then you're not going to do it well. You might be efficient to some extent on some meter, but you're not going to have happy employees and people. I did get lucky because I was able to find ways to to tap into my fun and creativity in certain ways. And we, I mean, the early stages of Adventure Challenge, the employees who were part of that, they all looked back on it so fondly. And none of them knew I was miserable or hated my life, you know, because we, you know, we were making so much money. It was like we'd, you know, rent boats and yachts and go do work days on the lake. And so fun. And it was it was a lot of fun. And 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 I was I was good. I was a good actor. I could put on a smile and and pretend like things were going good. But you know, I was just deeply miserable. But I think the I think one of the biggest things I've learned in leadership from creating the company is that leadership kind of sucks. And everybody wants to be a leader, but they don't understand that when you are a leader, you're painting a giant target on yourself. Absolutely. And you're just like, throw Mm. your opinions and accusations at me. As a leader, you don't have the luxury of being understood by everybody. Mm. Because also, if you're the top of, you know, in in the hierarchy of a business, you're at the top. People are scared to tell you what they think, but they have plenty of opinions behind your back. And so in the early stages, it was interesting because... You know, I I remember I've told this story before, but it there was a day where you know I walked into the company and we'd have these Monday meetings every Monday, and I walked in and I could just feel everyone was stressed out. Nobody was in a good mood. It was, and I was like, I was supposed to get up and talk about our numbers and objectives and yada yada, and I was like, this sucks. I don't want my employees to be miserable. I want them to enjoy their time here, and I want I want them to feel good and relaxed. And so I get up in front of everybody, I turn on the TV, 
and I turn on an episode of Friends. Nice. And I tell everyone to go get their bagels and they're because we had bagels and fruit and stuff. And I said, go get your bagels and we're going to watch this episode. And everyone's like, the hell are we doing? You know? And so everyone got their bagel and sat down and they're watching the episode of Friends and then it ended. And then I just hit next, next episode. And then everyone just kind of got comfy in the chairs and the couches cool. and everyone's watching work. and laughing. Yeah. <laughs> oh, they're getting paid for this too. They're on the clock, yeah. right? And, yeah. and then after like two or three episodes, I went out and turned the TV off and I said, hey guys, have a great week. Like go kick ass today. And so many people came up to me and were like, I was so stressed. This was amazing. Thank you so much. I feel so taken care of. You literally paid everybody to sit in front of the TV for an hour and a half and eat breakfast. Nice. And I was like, yeah, good job. I'm a good CEO. I'm a good leader. I had one person, one employee approach me and she was like, how dare you do this? She was like, we're expecting you to go up and to lead us and to show us the vision for the week and to give us objectives and charge. And you just take the cop out and you just put on the television. And I was like, that's what she, that's how she saw my action was like what I was trying to do, what I felt instinctually was this will be good for people because I'm feeling a lot of stress and anxiety coming from them. She saw as a as a lazy- A cop out, yeah. A cop out. Mm -hmm. And then I had two other employees go to other leadership and go like, he's such a horrible leader. Like how dare he turn on the television during a meeting? So unprofessional. Like, and But it was like 95% of everybody, they loved it. But there was 5% mm -hmm. of it who who assumed my intentions were bad and they, you know, spoke poorly of me. And that's when I realized I was like, you cannot make everybody happy. Even if you're doing something that on paper looks and sounds so good, somebody might villainize you and you have to be okay with that. And luckily I was able to talk to the lady who confronted me and explain my heart behind what I, why I did that. And she was like, okay, I can see that. I can understand that. The other two people, not so much. They, they were very bitter individuals and they were always looking for a villain to kind of place blame yeah. on. So it was like, if I would have done that or if I would have gone up and given a TED Talk and motivated everyone, they would have been like, who do you think you are, a TED Talk speaker? You know, they were always <laughs> looking for a reason to judge yeah. and to portray me as the villain. So I think that's the biggest thing I've learned about leadership is it's like you, like you fail the most as a leader and what the common perception of people following you is, is you shouldn't be failing because you're a leader. Mm. And it's like, no, I am just like, we are all failing. I'm just in the spotlight and you guys get to see all of my failures. And, <laughs> and I think it's being, it's being humble. And, and the amount of times I've stood in front of my employees and been like, I'm so sorry. I dropped the ball. This sucked. Like I'm learning, I'm growing. I didn't go to school to be a CEO. I didn't exactly. learn about this. This just yeah. happened and I'm doing the very best I can. And you get so much empathy and compassion when you show up with humility versus trying to cover up your mistakes with like, well, I have all the answers and you know, whatever. And this was a calculated decision and I'm, I stand by it. No, like I feel like 20% of the decisions I make are stupid, you know? And it's like, and, and I'm fine with that because like, as long as I'm willing to clean up the mess and own what I did, you can just move on and, and keep moving forward and keep developing. And, and so... That brings me to my next question that you've recently written a book and released it called Hello, My Name is Failure. Mm -hmm. And this is really so much of what you've just been talking about. And tell me about your book. Tell me about the heart behind it, some of it we know, and what you've learned about failure. Even your podcast is about it. So this is really interesting. What is it? What's the heart cry that you want to get across about failure to people? Yeah, I think the biggest message is failure is not the opposite of success. It's a prerequisite. Wow. Like if you cannot embrace failure, you will never embrace your full potential. 
And I'm, I'm singing to the choir. Every influencer out there is talking about failing. Go fail fast. Go fail upward. Go fail, go fail, 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 fail. And for me, it was like, failure is interesting because failure like sparks a lot of shame in a lot of us. And we can get motivated to go and take a risk and fail. But when you fail, if you don't properly, if you don't know how to categorize the failure, then it'll always manifest as shame. Right. And so, and, and, and so for me, it's like, I want to teach people not to just go fail, but how to process through a failure in a way that actually creates an educational experience versus, excuse me, if I use this word, a traumatic experience. Yeah. And, and the word trauma is overused, I know, but a lot of failures, if you go on stage as it's a like stand up, insert whichever one you need. <laughs> well, it's, it's interesting, right? Cause like, it, if you, if you, if you want to be a standup comedian, you go on stage and you just bomb and people are just like quiet and people are like laughing at you, not laughing with your jokes that can register as a pretty traumatic experience for somebody. If they have a lot of social anxiety, if they have stage fright to experience that much rejection from that many people, that can be very traumatizing. That can take you to where you're not going to do that again and, and fail and like, and it's what trauma is doing is saying, don't do that again. Like if you do that again, you're going to get hurt. So we don't want you to get hurt. We're going to protect you. And so when we fail, there's so many opportunities where that emotion comes up where it's like, hey, don't do that. Remember last time you did this, it was embarrassing. People laughed at you. People don't take you seriously. Don't fail. If we can rewire the way we see failure as, oh, I'm going to go try this knowing I'm going to fail. But what the failure is, is it's telling me, it's showing me what the way is by showing me what's not the way, right? So in, in, in the book, I talk a lot about, well, so the book is written from failure as a person addressing the audience. So the book, it's called Hello, My Name is Failure because it's as if failure is speaking to you as the reader. And so all the chapters are like failure in comparison, failure in, in dating, failure in relationships, failure in whatever. It has a bunch of letters and it's like, hello, my name is failure. And it's he's reintroducing himself as a coach and a mentor versus something to be avoided. So creative. And there's probably Thank no you. scratch off character. No scratch. Yes. No. Thank God, my first product that doesn't have a scratch. I'm done with that, y'all. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. But in the book, one of the the analogies I use is there's a difference between failing and losing. Losing is when you show up to a risk unprepared and you swing and you miss. That's losing because you don't learn from that. If you're going to go take a risk and you just blindly jump into it without preparation. You don't know where you missed the mark. You just know you didn't get what you wanted. Failing, failing is a good thing, is when you show up prepared to a risk, swing and miss. And you can learn from that because you can say, well, this is how I prepared. This is what didn't happen. What can I do next time? You recalculate, take the risk again. Did you fail again? Maybe a little bit less this time. I can figure this out. And so what I see a lot of people doing is taking a bunch of uncalculated, unprepared risks and they don't get the result they want and they blame it on failure. And it's like, no, you lost because you weren't prepared. Mm. And so it's like, and you just don't learn from that. And that creates all these experiences that are traumatizing where it's like, you yeah. don't actually, it's not educational. And if people can see failure as educational versus as something to run away from, I think they're going to achieve success a lot faster. And so mm. my hopes through this book is that they start to see failure as a force that wants to partner with them to speed up their, their, to speed up their success 
versus something that's saying you're not good enough for success. Mm. And, and I wanted to write a book that if I could give this to 18-year-old me, it would change my life. And that's why it took me like four years to write it because it just, it, it wasn't good enough. Like every year it was just like, no, I, I need to articulate it differently. It needs to. And so finishing it this last year, it felt so good because getting to read it and look through it, I'm like, yeah, I would give this to 18 year old self if I was the 18 year old ambitious self and say like, this is something you should go read, especially if you're somebody who's ambitious and you have dreams that are, that feel risky to you, that feel scary. So yeah, it's, it's definitely something I'm really excited about and I'm excited for people to, uh, to read it. That's one of my questions, actually, which is funny, because rather than come back to it at the end, tell me what you would tell your younger self, other than say, here, read the book. If you were right now looking at you at 13, mm -hmm. what would you say to young Bryant now? I'd probably give him a talk about how it's not as high stakes as you think. Right? Like in our heads, everything feels so high stakes. If you're going to go ask out somebody. At, at 16, you're so scared of rejection. You're so scared they're not going to like you. They're, they're going to say no. It doesn't matter. Like, it, it's not that big of a deal. Like, they say no to you, you move on to the next person, right? And they're probably not going to remember that in a couple years, unless it's a really weird encounter. We remember fa our failures more than anybody else's. Unless it's like a level nine or a 10 failure where it's like public, you know what I'm saying? Like, really bad where you like do something stupid. But that, I, I don't, I'm not calling that a failure. I would say that like we put higher stakes on our failures than other people. And if we can learn to forget as quickly as other people do, then we can have more grace and forgiveness for ourselves. Like if you think about like social anxiety or social failure or a time you're in a room and you embarrass yourself or you say something stupid, how many times do you lay awake at night and think like, man, what Paula said was so stupid. Like, I can't <laughs> believe she said that way. She was probably like, we rarely, but we'll lay in bed and think like, oh my God, I'm such an idiot. I said this thing. I sounded so stupid. I should have shook his hand instead of giving him a hug. I should have. And we put all this pressure on ourselves to like be perfect. And we, or, you know, we go on stage and we perform something and we mess up and we're so harsh on ourselves. But like, when was the last time you went to a stand-up comedy club, you watched a comedian just totally bomb and you laid awake at night thinking about how stupid he was. Like in the moment, you might be thinking like, oh yeah, that's embarrassing. Oops. Should it be, do better jokes, dude. And it's awkward, but like you just forget about it because you're more fixated on your life than you are really their life. And that's, that's kind true. of what everyone's doing. They're, they're, they're actually more fixated on what they're doing than what you're doing. And so if you go up and you make a complete idiot of yourself, yeah, it's a little awkward in the moment. It kind of sucks, but it's low stakes. They're not remembering that forever. And so I think I would tell myself to let go of the pressure that I'm putting on myself for every risk that I'm taking. That like, it's not going to ruin my life. You know, it's not going to change my life in a negative way. Like if I have some social embarrassment or some rejection or somebody says no, or somebody says that I did a bad job, like use that as education to just keep making steps and to not be afraid to take steps. I think I would have some kind of talk like that in a way that my 13-year-old self could understand that. <laughs> and he'd just be looking at you like, what is this guy talking about? Yeah, yeah I, <laughs> With I, I these blank eyes. <laughs> you're like, trust mm -hmm. me, you're going to need to record this because you need to know this. <laughs> yes, so exactly. Well, I love that Adventure Challenge emerged from a desire to break mundane routines. Mm -hmm. Can you share more about Adventure Challenge's genesis and its focus on providing unique, engaging experiences? And what I'm particularly interested in is that there's a link between risk, as you've been mm -hmm. saying, adventure, and breaking mundane. And 
do you think that we actually need that as human beings or do you think it's more that you ADHD self was bored easily or do you think we actually need more adventure in our lives what's the benefit of adventure yeah so for me adventure is kind of it's a, it's a weird word i like to think of it as i like to think of the word novelty is what we need as humans and so a lot of relationship counselors marriage counselors sex psychiatrists they'll tell you they'll 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 show you when a relationship's starting to die and it's when you stop having new experiences with your partner and so and you say new experiences and i don't mean fly to dubai and go you know yeah that's not do what something you mean. crazy I mean, getting out of what your brain is in the rhythm and cycle of doing on a day-to-day basis. Interesting, yeah. And so it doesn't have to be, I mean, it can be as simple as going to a new restaurant. It can be as simple as doing a date that you have never done before. It can be asking questions that you've never asked your partner before. It doesn't have to be crazy. And so the Adventure Challenge book, it says the Adventure Challenge. We're not telling people to go jump out of planes and go scuba dive or go cliff jumping. We're having them do something that is new to their everyday routine. That's to get them out of the routine so new conversation flows, so new ideas start flowing, and then they they can experience different sides of each other. And so like watching Netflix with your partner, going to the same restaurant that you always go to, taking a walk, these, these are all beautiful things. Talking about we, the kids because you don't know what else to talk about. <laughs> exactly. It's like, I mean, these are important parts of a relationship, right? But there, there, I feel like there should be a 10, 15, 20% aspect where it's like, we're going to break the mold. We're going to do yeah. something different. So instead of cooking together, you know, in one of the adventures in the book that's really popular is that it's called the helpless baker. It's where you're making a blind, you're making an apple pie. One person is blindfolded and the person who's not blindfolded is guiding your hands through the, the experience. Beautiful. I promise. Very sexy too. It's like ghost, isn't it? And the, the yeah. clay scene in the musical. Well, I've seen exactly. in the movie ghost. <laughs> yeah. It's literally just like that. Mm. And it. It, it 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 warrants new conversation. It's flirty. You're trusting your partner. You're using different. If your sentences. kids are watching, it's good for them. It's like marriage is cool. Oh, absolutely. Wow. <laughs> All this, yeah. You know, whatever. Yeah. In my situation, my kids would be watching. <laughs> oh, yeah. And I'm like, I think it's so important as humans. I think if I'm mentoring somebody and they say they're depressed, you know, if it's not a chemical depression, if it's not something where their hormones are completely out of whack, you know, I'll first have them do like a blood panel and see like, are they really low on vitamin D? You know, do they have proper nutrients? Because that's a big thing, right? And so I don't want to discredit depression to just being, you're not doing enough fun. Like, I know that's yeah, not absolutely. the answer. But sometimes we get stuck in these ruts and the world feels so small to us that we forget there's so many amazing, incredible experiences we could be having. And it doesn't take an absurd amount of energy. You know, because we think, oh, go explore the city. That sounds so big and scary. And it's like, it can literally be, I ha- I did a podcast episode called How to Have a Good Monday. And literally the whole, the episode is, I'm saying today, you're not going to do anything that you normally do. On your way to work, you're going to leave a little bit early and you're going to go down a different street to get there that you've never been before. You're just going to take a different route to work. When for lunch, you're not going to go to Chipotle if you always go to Chipotle. <laughs> you're actually going to find a restaurant you've never been to, and it's going to be a genre of food that you've never really experimented before. So you're going to do something new for lunch. When you're back at the office, you're going to find five minutes to approach an employee that you've never really had conversation with, and you're going to have two questions prepared to ask them. On your way home, you're going to listen to a genre of podcast that you've never listened to in your entire life. So it can be murder mystery. If you don't listen to self-help, it can be self-help. 
but you're going to listen to something you've never listened to before. And then when you get home, you're going to call somebody that you never call and you're mm -hmm. just going to have a five minute conversation with them. The feedback I've gotten, those, that sounds like a lot of steps, right? Like, no, it's but fantastic. It's, but it's like, you're like, okay, it's Monday. I have mm -hmm. these goals for the day. The amount of feedback I've gotten from just changing that day is like, oh my God, I feel like my world just got bigger. I had different conversations. I made a new friend. I, 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 I tried something new. And it's like, we get stuck in routine. And sometimes routine is good for us. But if you're feeling depressed and stuck, and it's like, break the mold. Just be a little yeah, disruptive. So Just do a little bit out of what you would normally do. Doesn't have to be crazy. All the things I told you to do aren't crazy. They're pretty easy. Even if you're socially awkward, you can find somebody that you can talk to for just two minutes and have a conversation with. Mm -hmm. and, and I think I incorporate this into my life a lot when I'm feeling like I'm in a rut. Whether it's turning on Netflix and playing something I would never watch before, yeah. whether it's listening to a genre of music I have never listened to before, or you know, trying to find weird questions to ask my girlfriend that I, you know, have never, you know, asked her. And so I think it's a really important part of our development and experience as humans to constantly be exploring. And mm. it doesn't have to be high stakes and crazy. I love what you're saying. I think it's so true. Like I have the most amazing marriage. Mm. And I credit a lot of that to the fact that we've had a very adventurous life. And it's not going to look like everybody else. But, you know, we married, we were in Australia for three years, we moved to London, and we lived there seven years. And we had our kids in London, you know, we we're in a, a country other than it. everything was always different, everything was changing. We went back to Melbourne, we were there five years, and then I got headhunted for this job in California. And mm. then my husband got a job in Atlanta. I mean, it's crazy. It's wow. absolutely crazy. But to me, I've had so much adventure and it's just brought so much joy to my life. And wow. I feel like it's made my marriage better. Now, no, nobody else is going to probably want to do what my husband and I have done because we're artists and well, he's a physical therapist for artists. Wow. But like, what you're saying are practical steps, not the norm. People mm. just get set into little routines. I've seen this everywhere I look. Everyone does the same thing. They're bored out of their freaking mind. Yeah. What you're saying is incredible because just doing a little thing like that, I mean, what an amazing episode you've made, can really unlock something adventurous. It's an area that I'm doing a lot of study in. Absolutely love what you just said. It's so incredible. How many kids do you have? Two. Two kids. They've been wow. everywhere. Born in London, five years in Australia. Now they're a wow, year in California, adventure. now in Atlanta. And they've been through a lot. Like. But wow. they are, do you know what? I've realized <laughs> it's not about what's going on out there outside the home. It's all inside the home that yeah. puts stability into the heart of a child. Totally. That's an aside. But, you know, as somebody who's grown up and you've been a kid, you understand it's all about mm -hmm. the inside of the home. Yeah. That really builds confidence and a, and a great that. kid. That yeah. sounds like a great upbringing. That's, that's, that's really cool. Yeah. That yeah. But <laughs> we don't want to move anymore. We're over it now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You guys like Atlanta? Absolutely love it. It's it's just the perfect spot. And mm -hmm. really the heart to be here is that I can afford a house because it's lower cost of living and mm -hmm. it's got a fantastic arts industry. And my husband has a great job. Oh, that's great. So I live in the South. I said y'all before, which sounds yeah. so wrong in an Australian. Oh, I bet. Yeah. Yeah. Y'all. <laughs> <laughs> now, I just am curious with your business partner, Ben Day, Surely there were some conflicts and challenges. How do you continue to work forward with a business partner when things get tough and your relationship gets mm -hmm. strained? Did it get strained ever? Yeah, yeah. I wanted to kill him. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, 
there were days that we both, I'm pretty sure I, I, I didn't hate anybody on this earth more than him. Wow. Yeah. He's so, but I'll preference that with saying he is, I have a closer relationship with him than I do probably most, even my family members. Wow. And, and I think it's actually, I don't want to compare it to that, but I would say it's, it's weird because when you go through hell with somebody like that for five, six years, it, a weird bond is formed or it destroys your relationship. And, and so for us, it was like, there was so much conflict at the beginning and it was all wrapped around the way we communicated to each other. And it was all about the ways we created assumptions about what the other person was meaning through their communication. So some of our rules in conflict is when we have a problem or the other person offends us, we have to assume the best about what their intention was, bring it to them and confront it immediately. And so, so a situation could be, you know, we're both, I don't want to say alpha males, but we're both alpha, very like take charge and lead. And, and, and so we're both very like confrontational, get it done type personalities. And so if, you know, at the beginning of the company, we're both leading, I was, you know, I'm the majority owner. So like my, I have final say, but you have two men who are building this together. And so on like a staff meeting. Maybe I said something and he made a joke at what I said and maybe as some employees laughed or vice versa. And I'm like, he hey. did that to look like a better leader. He did that to make me look like an idiot. He did that because he's insecure and he wants me to. And I'm creating all these negative assumptions about what he did. Instead of saying in my own head, maybe he was feeling really anxious and insecure up there and he was trying to just make people laugh and that was the only thing he could think of to do to loosen the tension. Okay. Hey, Ben, at the meeting today, you made this joke, and I'm sure you were probably just trying to be funny and have a good time with me, but the what what it felt like was it felt like you were belittling me in front of employees, and there's this narrative in my head where it's like, you did that on purpose, and I know that's not who you are, so I just wanted to bring it to you and, 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 and hear what your thoughts were. And it's like, oh, I'm so sorry. Well, this is what I was thinking. I didn't even mean to affect you this way. This is what, when we learn to communicate like that, our conflicts never really surpass a four. They used to go to... 11 out of 10 quite frequently we would frequently in like all staff meetings i'd have to be like hey ben can i talk to you in private and we'd have to leave the whole staff meeting and we'd have fight. <laughs> and and I'd it was like, like i need the popcorn people oh my god yeah <laughs> Dude, it was we had, we went to couples counseling together oh that's so cute yeah to oh, learn how to we... go through conflict yeah yeah and we're both, you know, heterosexual men, but we went to the, they, we went to couples counseling to learn because like, like this feels like a marriage. We need to learn how to communicate yeah. as such. And that like changed our relationship, like learning how to so communicate, good. learning to assume the best and to not let like, I forget who described it this way, but if you feel like the smallest chip, the smallest little jab or budge, you confront it as fast as possible because mm -hmm. it just builds up. So instead of having all this like feelings of like, well, he did this, 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 and this, no, immediately. Oh man, when you said this, I felt this way. Was there, are you feeling? And he might be like, yeah, I was feeling a little bit of anger. And so that's why I said that. And like, oh, okay, well, can we figure this out? And I'm like, dude, our arguments now are so funny, like the way they, they go, because they're just so, they, they don't turn into anything big. And I feel like we talk about higher stakes issues than I do with anybody else in my life. We're talking about millions of dollars or yeah. having to fire 10 employees or whatever. It's like a, and, and it doesn't feel high stakes when we're having conversation because it feels like we both um, have learned to communicate. 
And so that's been the biggest That's going to make I'll... you an amazing spouse. I hope so. <laughs> like, I hope it definitely plays it too. Oh my goodness. That's incredible. All right. I want to ask you something raw, but let's just go there. Yeah. When you make money, does it change the people around you? Have you lost friends? Have you gained friends? How do you know who's there for you? This, will, this might be a controversial answer. If you're surrounding yourself with really good people, it's not going to change them a ton. Their insecurities and things might flare up a little bit more. They might feel like, oh, well, I feel maybe inferior because now you're doing this and you have this income coming in. And that kind of stuff does come up. People who aren't really your friends are a lot more friendly towards you. You know, so I'd say like I I get I would get treated a lot better by strangers who knew who I was, but I didn't know who they were. But I think what it did for me is I was already I already had this narrative in my head that people only like me because they want something. Yeah. And that's the narrative I had created as a child. Mm. And so when I became, when I got a lot more money and had more success, that narrative played a lot stronger because then I was like, I now have a reason to point to this is what you're doing. So if somebody was trying to show me love, attention, affirmation, it was, it's because you want this or it's because I'm this. And it's because, and so I started to create this whole narrative that, People only want to be my friend because of this, that, and the other, and blah, blah, blah. Maybe some of it was, but I can't control that. I can only control the way that I perceive and interact with people. And I think there were a lot of relationships that I actually pulled away from, from my own insecurity of thinking that people were only out to be my friend because they had an agenda or a motive. We make up uh, so many stories in our head. (laughs) Yeah, we do. It's like, oh, it's half the time I think we we make up things in our head that aren't happening. But, you know, sometimes they are happening. So to be fair. Sometimes (laughs) they are. And it's like, I think now I would just, I have decided, I'm like, I have good intuition. I feel like I can read people really well. I am going to assume the best motives about everybody I interact Mm. with. And if I really feel like somebody's after me and or trying to manipulate me or use me for my money, I'm going to address it. But I'm going to assume every person who's kind, loving, and accepting to me is because I'm worthy of that and I show up as a good friend and as a good brother and as a good boyfriend and as whatever. And so, and so, yeah, like in my life right now, I also, I've come to a place in my life where I just don't spend money. I, I just, I surf, I play pickleball, I go out to eat with my friends. And so like- But you're I not going out and buying a Rolex like every week, like I yeah, know the big no, sports no. stars do when they make some yeah, <laughs> change. No, yeah, I, yeah I, I bought a Lamborghini back when the company was, you know, like three, two years ago. And, and it's so What a Lamborghini. <laughs> yeah, it's the most cliche thing you could do. It was the stupidest part. You have to have your moment, right? You, you do. I'm glad I had those moments because I can look back and be like, yeah, don't, don't be stupid like that. But like, like now it's like, yeah, money is energy. And if you're using money to try to build your ego and inflate your persona, you're just going to be miserable. If you use money to pursue ideas and build ideas that you have, you're going to be a lot happier. And so the friends I have in my life, they're there with me through thick or thin. They'd be with me if I was broke or successful. And and yeah, there's people who, you know, you know, in the dating world, I was on Bumble and Hinge and you date people and go on dates and you're like, yeah, you're kind of a gold digger and you can kind of feel that. Yeah. Um, but you know, then I, the woman that I met, I'm, I'm dating, she is incredible and she, I, she could, I'm not gonna say she could care less because I do think success, there is an element of like stability and oh, comfort. Yeah. And, yeah. As and a woman, that. we definitely think that way because <laughs> yeah, we're going to have babies it, one day, you know. <laughs> it's a sexy, it's a sexy yeah. element, but she's, yeah. if I went bankrupt tomorrow, she'd be with me. To, mm, to so build beautiful. back up, you know? Yeah. And so, yeah. My final question, does money make you happy? 
No, but I mean, I think there's multiple sides. Like money take money can alleviate stress, right? Like I'm not going to tell my, I'm not going to tell you know a struggling single mom who you know lives in government housing and she's trying to provide for her two kids that money doesn't make you happy because that's stupid. Like because like it, it's like her the answer to all of her problems comes in the form of money, and so but it like you kind of have to look at happiness objectively where it's like like does it bring fulfillment like mm-hmm. and, and no money doesn't bring fulfillment money can take away a lot of stress like i don't stress about like where my food's coming from my house if i want something but it doesn't bring fulfillment like fulfillment comes from making progress and that's ultimately where a lot of the happiness comes is making progress is having yeah. goals having ideas having so objectives yeah. and pursuing those things yeah, and absolutely. so if you think that if you had 10 million dollars like you'd be comfortable and it would take it would get rid of all of your problems and you mm. would feel good for a couple months but then you'd feel miserable because you wouldn't have these things that you need to go pursue develop that's yourself so grow interesting. And excel. yeah and so and so yeah I'm like there's elements of my life where it's like yeah, I I don't have as much stress as these people because I can provide for myself. But then there's elements of stress where like I have all these employees who, you know, if the company is has a bad quarter, it affects them or, you know, it, it does whatever and I'm I'm constantly Just different stresses. <laughs> yeah, different stress levels, different new levels as they say. <laughs> yeah. And mm. so yeah, I would say that I'd I'd say money helps a lot big fan of money, highly encourage people to go and and figure out creative ways to make it. But if you're thinking that that's going to make you feel fulfilled and that inner happiness, that excitement for life, like it's, it's not there. It's, it's not gonna, it's not gonna bring you any of that. So it's good to hear that from someone who's been there. It's mm-hmm. really good. Right. Where can people find your book? Yeah. And find um, you if you want them to find you. And the totally, adventure yeah. challenge. <laughs> the, yeah. The adventure challenge is theadventurechallenge.com. We're on Instagram. Brian Ellis on Instagram. Um, my book, Hello, My Name is Failure, it's on Amazon. Um, it's on Amazon. We have the physical book, the audio book, and the Kindle. Did so, you narrate yeah. yourself? I did not because the book is written from failure as a person. I hired a nice. talented voice actor who has Good. more of that wise, sage, deep voice who's I am narrating failure. it. I am feeling, yeah. And I'm, yeah. So it, he's nice. so good. I'm so lucky I found this guy. Yeah, he's I can't wait to hear it. Yeah. yeah so. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much for your time. I so loved thank hearing you. your story. So many things that you look and seem like a completely transformed person with a lot of peace and joy radiating, radiating out of you. And it's just really lovely to be in your presence. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for having me on. It was super fun. Phew, today's masterclass is done. I love reaching back and saying I've done this and helping you learn the easy way. If you want more, head to larabiancapilcher.com for show notes, links, freebies, my blog, coaching and courses. And you can also head to my socials, larabiancapilcher on Instagram and Facebook. I'm also on Twitter and Pinterest. Thanks again for listening please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. That would mean the world to me. And of course, keep on living the healthy, wealthy, wise artist living towards your dream life. Bye, friends. P.S. Shout out to my hottie hubby, Andrew Pilcher, who does all the editing on this podcast. <laughs>